Welcome back to Discourse from the Big Chair. I'm Steve Cuff, and joining me again is Stephen Coleman. If you're new to the podcast, you should probably start at the beginning. But this is a Tears for Fears podcast. What does that mean? Well, it means we've got a Tears for Fears super fan. That's Steve Coleman over here. And you got me, a guy who, up until a few weeks ago, never really listened to Tears for Fears and actually gave Steve Coleman a lot of crap for liking them. Uh, <laughs> but over the course of the last three weeks or so, uh, we've been going through the band's discography chronologically, and lo and behold, I think I'm becoming a little bit of a, a Tears for Fears fan. Uh, I absolutely love the first two records, and the third one, uh, you know, not my favorite, but I, I have immense respect for it. And so now we have made it to the point where we are going to be discussing the fourth Tears for Fears album, which... Uh, I think most people, the, the layman's, the average person out there, they probably don't know that Tears for Fears had a fourth album that was released in the 90s. <laughs> Is that fair to say, Steve? I, I'd say that's fairly fair. Yeah. Fairly fair. Absolutely. And, uh, and it's also technically a solo Tears for Fears album. It is. It is. Which, uh, and we're, we're going we're gonna to dive, we're going to dive right into that, actually. Um, but one thing I want to say is, if you are new to the podcast, if you've stumbled upon this, if you're a Tears for Fears fan, if you're an Optimism Vaccine fan, uh, make sure you head over to our uh, iTunes page, subscribe to our feed. It really helps with our numbers, and then when we have higher numbers, we get more visibility, more people can hear our stuff. So make sure you take care of that. Uh, I'm also going to be uploading all these episodes to YouTube, so if you head over there and uh, you want to comment... Or if you want to send us an email about the podcast series, uh, you can, like I said, comment on YouTube, you can comment on our iTunes page, or you can email us at optimismvaccine at gmail.com. And I'll give that information out at the end as well. Uh, But yeah, this is the first post-Kurt Smith uh, Tears for Fears record. So it's... It's not quite a Tears for Fears record, I guess, in the traditional sense, because Tears for Fears is two guys. This is just uh, Roland Orzabal's solo extravaganza. Although, was Tears for Fears always just Roland Orzabal? Ooh, there's there's your hot take. take. Yeah, your slate headline. (laughs) Pitch that one as a think piece. I don't know. Actually, after listening to this record, I I thought it was kind of interesting because... When I had to dive into uh, Sowing the Seeds of Love, I had trouble getting into it at first. I think it's it's kind of a difficult record to pick apart and, and kind of get to the meat of. Uh, with this record, it was easy for me to get into, but it didn't really leave a big lasting impression for me. Like There are very few songs on this album where I'm just like, oh, wow, Like this is a, you know, a hidden Tears for Fears gem. It's just very digestible and not particularly interesting and there's there's certainly an element missing and i think kurt smith might be the special sauce to continue my (laughs) ongoing food metaphor i've got going here i think that's kind of a recurring thing we've had for at least the two last two episodes is uh, food metaphors with tears for fears yeah i mean uh, this is elemental is a tears for fears big mac without any sauce and a lot of guitar (laughs) so much guitar yeah, I mean, it's really the first, I would say, straight-ahead rock record under the Tears for Fears moniker. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure, yeah. And there's really, other than Roland's like very distinct voice, there's not a lot of Tears for Fears on this album. And just like the last record, it kind of came in a weird place. So Sowing the Seeds of Love, that came out uh, at the end of the 1980s. So it was sort of like this end of an era big like super expensive sounding uh, pop record that embodied a lot of the characteristics of the 1980s just like cranked up to 11 this record came in was it like 1993 yep okay so we're talking like a full four years afterwards which again just like the previous album there's there's a pretty sizable gap here what was going on? I mean, obviously, uh, Tears for Fears sort of broke up. Was Roland still touring? Was Kurt Smith touring at all? Like, what was going on? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure why there was such a long gap. I mean, obviously, Tears for Fears, uh, Kurt Smith flew the coop in uh, 1990, right at the end of their Seeds of Love tour. And Kurt Smith basically just disappeared, uh, went to New York and just went out of the spotlight uh, it's interesting to note, though, that he did, he was contractually obligated to produce one solo album. So Kurt Smith did that, 
out of obligation. The album sucked. It came out right around the same time as Elemental did, which I think was a play by the record company to see who would sell more records. And uh, the Kurt Smith album was so bad that it received a mainland European lease and it was never even released in the U.S. Wow. Wow. It just was a homogenous piece of adult contemporary goop. I think uh, Mercury Records just threw a bunch of hotshot producers and songwriters his way, and he was just like, all right, I'll do it. And uh, even to this day, Kurt Smith has all but like disowned that album, Soul on Board. And uh, I've listened to it, and it's – yeah, it's – I mean, it's not offensively bad. It's just, uh, like I said, just a homogenous piece of adult contemporary goop. Yeesh. It should have been the album title, actually. I think it's catchy. I think that's a good way to you know push some albums, especially because we're entering the grunge era. I mean, that seems pretty edgy. And uh, interestingly, with uh, Elemental, uh, speaking of the grunge era, uh, the uh, producer that Roland Orzabal is working with, he also he has this guy Alan Griffiths, who's like his co-songwriter, co-producer. Mm-hmm. But they're also working with Tim Palmer, who at this point is most famous for working with Pearl Jam. Oh, okay, okay. Would, so uh, that's sort of their intro to the grunge era. And again, I don't know what the big delay was this time, other than maybe just Roland Orzabal trying to find a direction for Tears for Fears. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that uh, I know he was building a home studio at this point, too, uh, which Elemental compared to Seeds of Love, they're really scaling things way back. Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. And I, I definitely want to talk about that, too, because that's that's one of the first things that really popped up for me. Well, I think this is a good time to sort of jump into the first track, actually, because we're, we're covering a lot of, of ground that I think uh, I, I think would be good if we had the, 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 the songs, the individual songs, to kind of talk about some of these things that are going on in this album. So, uh, yeah, this is this is elemental, baby. I really love this intro. I do song. like the intro a lot. And it's kind of funny, too, because this song doesn't do a whole lot for me, but I heard this intro and I was just like, oh man, maybe this one's really going to surprise me. Uh, it's also one of the few songs in this album where like, the synths and the keyboards and stuff are, are sort of prominently featured, to a degree. Mm-hmm. So this might be the most Tears for Fears-ish song on the album. I think. Yeah. It's yeah, also I got. See that. I, uh, I I broke one of my own rules here. I, I was trying to figure out because I listened to this album like three times, and I was like, okay, what is the single? Like nothing really sticks out as a single, and that's not to say that like, oh, it's a horrible album. There's no singles here. It's just like there's no like big standout track. Mm-hmm. And then so I, I I hopped on YouTube and I watched <laughs> the music video for Elemental, and that is that is something. That is that is a music video, my friend. I'm really glad you watched the video, actually, because I was going to talk about the video um, <laughs> yeah, tying Elemental about? to the grunge era. Um, the video was actually directed by Samuel Bear, whose best-known work is Smells Like Teen Spirit. Yeah, I can definitely get that. Like, just some of the shot composition in the music video is just like, oh, God. And then just the really, like, face-value interpretation of Elemental. It's like, oh, here's Roland Orzabal standing around with CGI fire all over his body. <laughs> <laughs> and water. And, and water as well, yeah. Uh, the other thing I really like about this song is there's a couple parts where everything except for, like, the rhythm section drops out, and it really highlights the bass playing, and I was just thinking in the back of my head when I was listening to it, it's like, oh, is that like a, a little jab at Kurt Smith? Like, here's the bass solo you don't get. I really think it could be, um, because it's not clear who played the bass on any of these songs. Mm-hmm. All the instruments are played by Roland Orsville, Alan Griffiths, and Tim Palmer. Okay. So there's no like individual credit listing in this album. Uh, so it might be Kurt, or it might be Roland Orzabal doing that actual bass solo. And, uh, yes, or maybe giving Kurt the finger. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is, the, the other thing that I noticed, and this is, this is kind of a theme that really stick, stuck out to me on this record, and that's, we're, we're getting into this territory where Tears for Fears is basically turning into this, like, version of, like, Sting and U2 sort of melded together. There's, oh, there's kind no, of under, really? Yeah, there's there's kind of, like, an underlying, like, adult contemporary vibe slash, like, 
rock arena rock music that your dad likes, you know? Uh, and and U2 has that and, and even the album cover If you look at the album cover of Elemental If you're listening right now Go go Google it Get, get the Google image search going It's very reminiscent for me Of like the Joshua Tree album cover Oh god So I mean And, and you could see you could, in, in, one, in one sense Roland Orsbell sort of moving towards this More rock heavy Grunge influenced sound but on the other end of the spectrum there's a lot of moments on this record where i'm like damn this just sounds like you two with the guy from tears for fears singing <laughs> did i just break your your tears for fears heart there steve well oh god um <laughs> maybe we'll keep this conversation going but uh i don't know if i would necessarily agree yeah. <laughs> um if anything at least uh the guitar playing is way better than any u2 album sure sure well, hot I, take hot take again yeah no I, I agree i think most the other thing is too is with a lot of these songs there's like three or four guitar tracks going on at once uh but a lot of the songs have that underlying edge thing where he just plays like two or three notes but then he's got like all this echo and reverb layered over it so it's just kind of you know the, the streets with no names thing, or the streets have no names. That thing, that oh. sound. There's a lot of that going on in the background. Just that, like, you know, it's U2-esque, U2-esque. Ah, you're breaking my heart, Cuff. I'm, I'm just, I'm digging it. I didn't know you hated U2 so much. I mean, don't get me wrong, I hate U2, but. I, I, well, I would say I hate U2, but I definitely, uh, yeah, I don't know. That's a that's a tough pill to swallow. Yeah, that's that's a little bit rough. It's jagged, jagged little pill. <laughs> well, at least this is like early '90s U2, so it's not like you know how to dismantle an atomic bomb era U2. That is true. I I will defend '90s U2 uh, to anybody on the street <laughs> as, that wants to fight as, me about it. As long as you're not defending U2 putting their songs automatically onto your iTunes, because that that's not fun. Mm-mm. That's the worst thing to wake up to in the morning. <laughs> Surprise you two. Like, what the hell is this? Oh, <laughs> it's a new U2 record. And now, hey, uh, this, this song also continues the long and storied tradition of, uh, I almost called them U2 just now, I'm sorry, uh, of Tears for Fears, <laughs> <laughs> starting each of their albums with a single that's like five and a half, six minutes long. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's a it's a grower, and um, it, if anything, like I would say, elemental definitely. I get more of a <laughs> stay with me on this one. Sure. I get a Talking Heads influence on okay. Elemental. Okay, I can see uh, that. Sp- specifically, uh, like anything you would hear off of like Remain in Light. I mean, maybe not um, so much in style, but just the fact that there's just that driving rhythm throughout the entire song, and there's not a lot of change up in that mm-hmm. five and a half minutes. No. Um. So, yeah, I'm going to go with that. <laughs> I mean, I've always thought that, but uh, no, I'm going to I can definitely I'll... I can hear that too. That that <laughs> kind of blends with the sting in the U2 a little bit. <laughs> oh. uh, I just love disgusting you with talking about U2. But hey, let's let's go on to the next track cuz this is actually this is my I think my favorite on the on the album. Oh, okay. So th- this is uh this is Cold. This also might be Maybe their most, like, I want to say, like, Britpop influence song on the record, or at least one of the most Britpop influence songs on the record. It sounds to me a lot like Swerve Driver, who were just starting to take off then. Uh, and then there's, there's a few moments in here, too, that are very, like, Beatles esque, which is kind of nice. Um, mm-hmm. It also highlights another issue that I have with this album, and we, we touched on the production just a, a little bit in our introduction, where you mentioned that. You know, the last album was this big, expensive studio record, and at this point, Roland Orzabal was he was working on his own home studio, and I kind of figured that's what was going on here because there's two things that I, that really stick out to me. One is the mix is really flat; um, it, it doesn't it doesn't have that vast expansiveness. Like I think I mentioned on the last episode that I felt like Sowing Seeds of Love that that whole record. It just felt like it was recorded in an opera house somewhere or something. It, just, it sounds so big. Uh, this is a lot, a lot flatter. And the reason I say flat instead of like more intimate or more personal or something like that is because I feel like he's still going for some of that big sound, but he just doesn't have the right environment to pull it off. 
and then the other thing that, that goes on in this song, too, is the vocals are so, so high in the mix. Uh, if you're listening with headphones, it's not as noticeable. But if you just put this record on in the car, especially like this song, it's the vocals just drown out like everything. And it's, it's almost like jarring in a way. And it's too bad because there's a lot of cool stuff going on in this song. Specifically, there's like there's at least three guitar parts in this on this song and it's really cool mm-hmm. yeah i um would tend to agree i think uh, overall the album elemental if i have like one major disappointment with it it's just the way it's mixed mm-hmm. um and i don't i don't know that it's necessarily the way they intended it to be mixed it may have just been the mastering sure, when it sure. was pressed when it was copied um it's one of the only Tears for Fears albums actually that's never been remastered or um, remixed at any point, um, unless maybe some of these songs showed up on like a greatest hits compilation. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are all just like I don't know sonically. Like there's a few issues. I actually I have this album on vinyl though, oh. <laughs> and which is very hard to get. My dad tracked it down on eBay. I think we got it from Brazil. Oh Jesus! And uh, it sounds great, uh, <laughs> and so I don't know if that's like the way the master is intended to be sound to is, is intended to sound. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely uh, would agree with you that at least on like compact disc or even MP3, like the uh, vocal mix is a bit high. And like you said, it is a shame because there is a lot of there are a lot of interesting things happening in uh, Cold, mm-hmm. and uh, I appreciate you thinking you you recognizing sort of that Britpop influence. Uh, in the song, mm-hmm. oh, because absolutely. I I would agree, but I also get a lot of like almost like American rock influence on it too, mm-hmm. um, almost like Tom Petty esque in a way. Yeah, yeah, I think there's a bit of that, and this is this is kind of coming in a weird time because with the last couple of Tears, for, or actually for the first three Tears for Fears albums, it really felt like they were one step of he- ahead of all of their contemporaries in terms of what they were doing with pop music. Um, so, you know, with the first record, there's just all those crazy layers of synthesizers. Uh, the second record, they're just, they're just putting out these lengthy, beautiful, perfect pop songs that are just so much better than anything else other new wave groups are doing. And then, of course, in the third album, uh, you know, that's kind of like a, a shoot for the stars moment where they're just like, let's make like the biggest sounding pop record of the 1980s. Um, with this album, it feels like much more in line with what's going on. In the early 90s, uh, you hear the grunge, you hear uh, sort of the, the beginning of the, that Britpop movement of the 90s sort of bubbling up. Uh, there's bits of, like, creation records that you can hear uh, on this album. There's, there's little bits of Primal Scream. Um, and then even Tom Petty, like, right around this time, Tom Petty was kind of having, like, a, a second wind of sorts in the late 1980s and early 1990s. So, yeah, I think that's, that's definitely something that you can, you can hear on this record. And it's weird, though, because, again, like, this is the first time where I'm listening to a Tears for Fears album, and I feel like they're sort of playing catch-up with what's going on in contemporary music as opposed to leading the charge. Hmm. Yeah, I um, I can't say that I would disagree to that, actually, um, because um, I don't know if it's just... Um, Again, Roland Orzabal just trying to really um, find his footing after uh, spending an entire decade of just, like you said, sort of being right at the forefront. Um, I think just trying to figure out what Tears for Fears is going to sound like from this point on. I mean, he's at a point now in his career where he can sort of just relax. Uh, There isn't as much pressure to produce a hit album, Um, although he's still on a major label. So, I mean, there are certain, I think, you know, industry pressures maybe, but... Um, I think he's more interested in uh, just exploring things that kind of just turn him on musically. And um, mm-hmm. I know that in interviews he's mentioned, at least in this period, he's talking about bands like Blur and Oasis. But, I mean, maybe not Oasis at this point. They weren't quite around yet. Yeah, but. yeah they were still yeah, in their infantile state here. Probably recording their first record, actually. But yeah, yeah. yeah. I, the Gallagher yeah. brothers are just coming out of diapers at this point. Just out of diapers. No, actually, there's there's a really good documentary on Creation Records, and uh, it's basically about how the guy who ran Creation, he found Oasis, he was just like, okay, we got to have you guys, and it's just like about Oasis being blown away because all the guys at Creation Records are just like alcoholic drug addicts, and they're just like, oh, wow, Jesus, 
this is the biggest record label in in England right now. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously they latched onto a bit of that themselves. Uh, but yeah, it's, sorry for the the tangent there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I guess in and this is not an insult in any way. Poor Tears for Fears. So hopefully the Tears for Fears faithful won't pick up their uh, pitchforks and come after me. Uh, this is this is like a really safe record, and it makes sense, you know, um, when you see a lot of these bands that find a lot of success during one decade, and then you start to see music transitioning to a different sound, different bands are starting to get popular. This is something that a lot of older bands do, where they just sort of kind of take a step back, and they say, okay, let's just make a straight-ahead rock record. Let's, you know, that's the kind of stuff that we love. Let's not go crazy. So <laughs> I, I think that's where this sort of falls in. It's just like, uh, did, have you heard the new Keith Richards record, Steve? Um, no, I have not. Yeah, well, they've, <laughs> they've not been, had the pleasure. <laughs> they've been they've been playing it a lot for some reason on eighty eight nine in Milwaukee, and what? Yeah, it's it's weird because it's just like this fine. It's a completely fine garage rock record. You know, that's all it is. It's not it's not particularly memorable. It's not particularly bad. And it has all of like the the guests that you would expect from that kind of record. It's just like, oh, and here's a song with Nora Jones because he's Keith Richards. And <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like but it's not it's not bad. It's just like there it is. It's just there. <laughs> and that's fine sometimes. Uh, but there, there certainly are some standout tracks uh, on this album. And but a few things that. I, I really could not wrap my head around. I think we're gonna we're gonna kind of get into that. Uh, so the next track, I think it, it it sort of caps off this trio of songs that starts off elemental. So this is uh, break it down again, mm-hmm. and it kind of builds on I think a lot of the Britpop influence from Cold, where it starts off with these like almost like marching drums, which is very Kinks or Beatles esque. Uh, it also reminds me a lot of a more contemporary band, and I'm not even sure if they're still together, but they put out. A lot of, by a lot, I mean like three, probably three records in the mid-2000s. Uh, they're called Wilderness. I don't know if you ever listened to them. Yeah, before. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I hear a lot of that in in Elemental, um, even though I have no clue if the guys in Wilderness have ever listened to this record. Uh, but it's just sort of this kind of like mid-tempo rock record where they lean heavily on the the vocals to sort of drive the song. Uh, and I definitely get a lot of that too in uh, in the third track here, which brings me to a question I have for you, Steve. Do they play any of these songs live ever? Yeah, well, um, with "Break It Down Again," I um, it, it, that actually was a big hit for Tears for Fears. Hmm. Uh, it was sort of their last uh, entry into the at least the U.S. top forty. Uh, it was a number one modern rock hit, and uh, I believe it was a at least top 20 in the regular charts. I remember being a young kid and actually hearing it on the radio fairly oh, wow. frequently. Uh, at least in, in the Milwaukee area, it was actually a very big radio hit. Um, so, yeah, commercially, like, Break It Down Again was a smash for them. And uh, it's definitely, uh, when we see them in Detroit, I would be very surprised if they don't play it. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually it's one of the songs that comes towards the end of their set list. Uh, for me as a super fan, it's actually always a treat to see live just to see Kurt Smith playing bass and singing the backing vocal to it because <laughs> I always felt in Break It Down Again during the course where it's just like, break it. You know, it sounds like mm. Kurt Smith. Oh, absolutely. I, f- I feel like it's Roland Horsable trying to like get those harmonies, like he's harmonizing with himself. Sure, sure. And there's there's a couple of moments on this record where he does that and it's just like, oh, he's doing his Kurt Smith impersonation for this song. Uh, yeah, that's. I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out, and that is interesting that they still play, you know, a song like "Break It Down Again" live. Uh, and I don't, I don't remember, like, I don't remember anything from this record, or really anything from the, the the prior record ever being, or previous record ever being on the radio. And I think part of the reason why is because the big alternative rock station in Detroit is actually based out of Windsor, Ontario which is just like right across the river from Detroit, if you know, you're not familiar. So it's interesting just talking to friends who grew up on like the other side of the state of Michigan or other places in the Midwest or, you know, any other region in the, in the United States, as opposed to uh, where I grew up and, and the kind of music they played on pop stations, because my memories of like what was a big hit song in the 90s 
there's a lot of overlap, but there's also some strange anomalies. And I mean, I certainly don't remember any Tears for Fears being played. And there's other bands like if I were to ask the average guy in the street, how many hits does the band Our Lady Peace have? The answer would be, I don't know, one, two, (laughs) maybe three. Uh, If you lived in Metro Detroit in like the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, based on radio play, the answer is actually they're the second coming of the Beatles, and they've had nine thousand hit songs. So, <laughs> I have there's there's a serious serious like Canadian influence over the Detroit music airwaves, and it's it it makes for some very odd odd things every once in a while. Strange conversations I have with people where I'm like, you don't remember that song? I probably heard it like twice a day. No, it was never hit in the United States. <laughs> Yeah, I have vague memories of Our Lady Peace. Yeah, yeah. And did you know that, uh, yeah, if, if Our Lady Peace was the, the Beatles of Canada, then uh, I guess that made the tragically hip the Rolling Stones. <laughs> yeah. So Bare Naked Ladies would be the Kinks? Yeah, basically, basically. <laughs> um, and that's that's another group that, like, when One Week was a big hit, it wasn't a surprise to me because in in my mind they had already had, like, five smash hit singles which was not the case in the rest of the United States. So, yeah. So, but were you a fan of Break It Down Again, Steve? I did. I, I enjoyed it. I think, I think the, first, the first three tracks are, I'm not in love with Elemental, I, even though I really like the intro. Uh, Cole is certainly my favorite. And then I think, like I said, the third track is, I think it's solid, and it kind of caps off this little trilogy to start the record. And it really got my hopes up. I, when I, the first time I listened to this, I was like, okay, you know, if they're going to make a straight-up rock record, this could go in some really interesting places. And, again, I don't think this is a bad record by any stretch of the imagination, but I there's just not enough... Maybe experimentation isn't the right word, but I just I don't feel like Roland Orzabal is like pushing himself enough to do something interesting here, especially considering the things that they did on, on the prior three records. So, yeah, I don't know. It's a good song. It's a good song, which... Is interesting too because uh, Mr. Pessimist track four is probably the worst song on the record. <laughs> oh, Country Mile! It, uh, it's hot in here. So many hot takes. Yeah, this is, Jesus. I, I, it's well, you pe- said you didn't feel there was a lot of experimentation on Elemental. Uh-huh. I feel like this is probably the most experimental song on the record. It just sounds like I don't know. It just sounds like he was. Like he was hanging out with the guys from Primal Scream at like a rave, and then he came home and he was hung over listening to some trip hop or something, and then he just like noodled around for five minutes and made this. It, it goes nowhere. It just sounds like a trip hop song they'd play on the Weather Channel at three a.m. Like, I, I <laughs> and there's a difference too because you know we talked about some of the B sides from the the first two Tears for Fears records, and just like some of the crazy stuff that they were doing, uh, whether or not it made made the album. Whereas with a song like this, it's just like it's like it's just filler. It doesn't really serve a purpose in the in the grander scheme of Elemental as as an album. It, it doesn't do anything for me. Are we able to cue it up really quick? Oh yeah yeah yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, uh, I just I just want everyone to take my word for it. It's not <laughs> I'm uh, right imagine now. you're at home eating a sub sandwich, watching the Weather Channel at three in the morning. Yeah, exactly. This is this is eating Quiznos after the bar watching the weather channel to see if you should wear pants or shorts tomorrow um yeah well i guess i'll talk a little bit about mr yeah, pessimist ahead, <laughs> I try and cue it up. What, what the hell is that song about? and it's funny too because i felt so cynical when i was listening to it i was like i hate this what is this why is this here it's just like oh because i guess i'm mr pessimist when i listen to this song <laughs> exactly <laughs> i don't know if that was the intention um yeah i don't I've never really been sure. I go from feeling like, hey, this is pretty fantastic in some ways just mm-hmm. because I admire the uh, experimental nature of it. But then I'm just – there's something about the synthesizer, the doo-doo-doo, yeah. Like there's something about that tone that just kind of gets – there we go. Tomorrow, partly cloudy skies. High of 65. <laughs> low of 61. <laughs> With a 30% chance of light showers. I just, like... It just, it just doesn't, it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. Well, I mean, towards the end, there's sort of that, that climactic uh, 
you know, just the. I don't, yeah, I can't defend this one. I'm sorry, Tears for Fears fan. I just, I just, I just fast forwarded to the end. Could you tell? Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh Jesus. Um. Yeah, I, I, I got, I got nothing to say. And the other thing too is, how long is this song, Steve? It's uh, it clocks in just under six and a half minutes. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's, it's quite yeah. lengthy, quite lengthy. I wouldn't call it the centerpiece. It's a, it's been a, it's always been a bit of a distraction for me. Um, I know during the tour for Elemental, I believe they played this live on almost every set, and I think a lot was made of it at the time during the live performances where it was like for the band to really kind of jam out and express themselves a bit more. So maybe it's one of those songs that just lends itself to being a better when it's played live. Um, Yeah, I I can see that. But I guess the other side of that would be, you know, I think it's cool when bands sort of interject that and they just have little like, you know, rock out jamming transition pieces in their set lists. But does that necessarily belong in an album? And the other thing I was thinking because I was like, okay, this is about halfway through the record, almost halfway through the record. So maybe this is like the end of side A, if this was like a vinyl pressing. But then I'm guessing it's either it's either not, either the next song is the last song on side A. Um, I, I can I, confirm I, that, yes, the next song is <laughs> the last song on side yeah, A. Yeah, so that doesn't even make sense. So if you, if you capped off the side of an album, so this was like the end and then you had to walk over and flip it, I guess it would make more sense mm-hmm. then? Well, I think... Stand, um, it doesn't work for me. Well, I think the vinyl pressing that I have, too, I mean, this is 93, and at this point, the entire industry is just making records for compact disc. Sure. So sure. Um, I think it, they just, when they pressed it on vinyl, they just divided it, because the album is 10 songs long. They just went to song five. All right, that's the halfway mark. We'll mm-hmm. cut it off here. That's where we'll flip it over. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I, I can see that. I can see that. I'm sorry. The Tears for Fears fans are going to be mad at me. Is this is this an album that Tears for Fears fans generally enjoy, or is there some animosity towards this record because Kurt Smith was completely cut out? Or how do, how do fans feel about this record? Uh, that's a tough one. Um, I don't think. Um, I think there are definitely two camps. I think the camp that was behind Roland Orzabal and his career was definitely bigger than the people who were like, oh, we can't listen to these guys anymore because Kurt Smith is gone. Um, That being said, over time, I don't hear a lot of people talking about Elemental. I think they'll post videos of like television performances like Tears for Fears singing Elemental on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, Mm -hmm. which is a bizarre thing to watch just to see them on Leno and then to see Roland Orsbill shaking hands with Troy Aikman. Oh, that's that's really weird. <laughs> yeah, and then, um, then I'll be like, "Oh wow, guys, that that was great. That was really good. Wow, tears for fears, guys." <laughs> that's perfect, actually. <laughs> yeah, come on, sit, sit out here, Roland. It's fine. Um, <laughs> I don't know if my Jay impression is as good as yours. That was pretty spot on. Thank you. Um, but yeah, I, I feel that for a lot of fans, if you go onto like message boards now, um, more. People tend to talk about what Roland Orzabal's hair looked like than what they talk about than talk about the actual record. He did have some beautiful long flowing locks. Like I that's the one thing that really stood out other than the goofy CGI and just kind of like grungy silliness of the elemental music video. Just Roland's hair is so on point. He is a beautiful man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, far a far cry from the man, the boy we knew in the eighties. He's right. uh all of a sudden turned into this like stallion of a man. And uh, yeah, I think that's probably the only reason why um, a lot of uh, female fans talk about him online during this era. He's a stud muffin. Mm-hmm. Can't deny it. Can't deny it. Well, let's, let's move on to the fifth track here. Sorry, I just moved my face away from the mic. Somebody pointed that out. It's like, tell, tell the Steve who doesn't like Tears for Fears to keep his face by the mic. I got to remember to hold my – because I, I have this book full of all my notes, and I, I turn my head away to, like, read the notes. I got to remember to, like, prop it up in front of myself. Uh, so, uh, dogs of best friend's dogs? Dog? Dogs of best friend's dog. It's a pretty confusing title. It is. It is. Uh, it's also, I, my only note on this song is the official Tears for Fears grunge song. Like, this is their grunge anthem. I'm actually going to queue it up right now. <laughs> I definitely do remember a period, though, where, like, all my friends were big grunge fans, as, like, most kids were in the 90s. Mm-hmm. 
And I would always think that this song is like the song I would have to play for my friends to convince them that Tears for Fears was good. <laughs> this is the Tears for Fears is cool. I promise. Yeah. This and, is. Um, oh, go ahead, Steve. Sorry. I say it's it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty good song. I, I think it. You know, it's it's also one of the. <laughs> It's going to sound like a backhanded insult. It's one of the shortest songs on the record, which is why I like it. No, um, a lot of these songs, like a lot of Tears for Fears songs around this period, it seems, um, it, it stretches well beyond five minutes, closing in on six minutes, going over six minutes. Like, uh, There's a lot of long songs on this album, which is fine, but because this is more of a straight-up rock record in a lot of ways, they don't necessarily build the way some of their more you know orchestral pop compositions do. Um, so this one clocks in at like three and a half minutes, I think, or somewhere around there, and it yeah. feels it, it just feels a lot trimmer, and it's it's got a little bit more energy, and you know it, the song doesn't wear itself out essentially. Yeah, and there's a lot that happens in it in the in those three and a half minutes. Too. Oh, absolutely! And this is another song too where I, I mentioned earlier how they just like layer guitar tracks on top of guitar tracks, and this is probably you know something that. He started doing, obviously, back when he was doing it with synthesizers, but there's so many cool guitar parts that are layered on top of each other in this, and yeah, there's a lot going on. Yeah, and it's, um, I, I guess I've never had much to say about the song other than, like, I enjoy it when it comes on, and it's, uh, it's also, I think, one of the very non-Tears for Fears-esque Tears for Fears songs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's a very good, very good point. Even even on this record, it's a bit of an oddity, but uh, in a way that I really appreciate, especially coming right after uh, Mr. Pessimist. Yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I think, too, if, if, you, if someone came up to you and they weren't a Tears for Fears fan, and for some reason they said, hey, Steve, what's, uh, you know, what's, what's the best Tears for Fears stuff from the 90s? You know, I think you could play this song in cold, and they'd be like, oh, okay, I kind of get what they were about at this period. And, you know, that's, that's and- good, that's good. That's how you convince the, uh, you know, when you're a kid and your friends are listening to Pearl Jam and you're like, no, Tears for Fears, man. Check this out. <laughs> it was in to say it was produced by Tim Palmer. They're like, who the hell is that? He produced Pearl Jam. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> but, man, it's not as good as Vitalogy. Uh, actually, a lot of things are. Let's move <laughs> on to Fish Out of Water because this is kind of an interesting song. And uh, I, I want to talk about the lyrics specifically. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna move on so we can uh, yeah. play a little bit of this for the people. So this song is again it's it's another guitar driven one, but it's also kind of like a somber down tempo ballad in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And at first when I when I started listening to it, I was like, oh, this is like a breakup song or something like that. And then the more I listened to it, the more I realized. I think it's a, a, a I Broke Up With Kurt Smith song slash Kurt Smith diss track. Yeah, and it's uh, very specific, too. Um, there's not a lot of uh, vagueness to the lyrics. He's making some very specific references to Kurt Smith. Um, and he's saying uh, some really mean things, too. Like, oh, you just hang out with all your cool L.A. friends and you're just a douche. Well, he, doesn't, he doesn't call Kurt Smith a douche, but implied douchiness. <laughs> Yeah, he's being kind of a dick to him, and it's great. It's one of my favorite moments in their career. Um, I know when this album came out that more press was probably centered on this song than anything else just because it was such a big big hit to Kurt Smith. Um, I mean, there's that one line in the song where uh, – this is like on the crucifix his mother made hangs one more martyr to the hit parades like holy shit man yeah <laughs> Jesus. that's that's mean well especially considering that like i don't know it makes it sound like kurt smith was a big sellout i mean that's kind of the you know when he's just oh he's just living this lavish lifestyle and he doesn't care about music and that's kind of the direction that it it moves in which is weird when you think about it, because the only reason Kurt Smith even made an album at this point was because he was contractually obligated to. Like, he was just done. He just stepped away from the industry, basically. And this diss track makes it sound like he's, I don't know, writing songs for new kids on the block or something. 
<laughs> um, definitely not. Um, and I think that maybe there was just resentment from Roland Orsbo, like considering Tears for Fears is this unit, is the they're perceived as this duo, and I feel like maybe he felt like he was doing a lion's share of the work all the time, mm-hmm. and that Kurt Smith was just kind of like living this jet-set lifestyle. Sure. Obviously, none of us know for sure what was going on behind the scenes. We're not in the band, but um, I mean, I think that there's two sides. There's people who argue that Roland Orzabal in the studio at least was more of this, had more of this like megalomaniac mentality. Mm-hmm. Whereas Kurt Smith was just kind of like, fine, whatever, do whatever you want. I'm out of here. I can't like edit drum tracks for 16 days straight. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I think that's, that's where that kind of that divide is with these guys is you can tell, especially on this record, cause this is like the Roland Orzabal record. Um, and, and the last album as well, there's just so much attention to the to detail, and at points it's almost distracting. Like, <laughs> just the level of devotion he must have had to just tweaking little tiny things. And Kurt Smith, to me, he just seems like a guy, like like you said, he's just like, you know what, it's, it's fine. We can edit drum tracks for 16 hours instead of 16 days, and chances are no one will notice except for you. And where Kurt Smith saw that as being reasonable... And probably caring about more big picture what the what the songs were like, um, maybe you know Roland Orsball, and this is just me speculating. Maybe he thought you know oh he's just lazy, doesn't care or something like that, without considering oh maybe you care a little too much, buddy. Yeah, and um, I, I think that's a very fair and probably very almost accurate observation. Other than just like I said, not being either one of those guys and knowing for sure. But, um, and I, and I hate to like just gossip, but I think like that gossip is very important to this song. It's very important to this album. Um, you know, more than just being musical partners, these guys were close friends since they were like young kids and to all of a sudden go from being, you know, coworkers slash friends to not speaking to each other for 10 years is a big jump. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. Um, yeah, it's, this is, this is another good song on this record. Uh, it's pretty solid. I think it has most of the like early tears for fears DNA in it too. In that you mentioned like, Mm -hmm. it's very downtrodden kind of somber. Like this would almost not be out of place on the hurting. I mean, other than sort of having that nineties production machine on it. Oh yeah. 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 Aside aside from the production. Uh, I, yeah, I agree. hundred percent, hundred percent. Uh, which I guess this brings us to our uh, next track. It's, a, it's another, <laughs> another favorite of mine. Um, this is my uncle Mike's alarm clock on his iPhone. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, he, he wakes up to this song. F- filler track part two, Electric Boogaloo. I would I would not be able to wake up to this. I would probably fall asleep to this. <laughs> yeah. This is, I, wonder, I wonder if you could set a snooze alarm so when you hit snooze, your phone just plays this. <laughs> Yeah, it's um, it sort of like goes back to the world of like their early B sides. I think, um, even though obviously this isn't a B side, it's an album track. But um, mm-hmm. I could see this being very closely related to um, like going back to their first album. Um, this is sort of like their <laughs> and stay with me on this one. Sure. <laughs> this is sort of like Elemental's version of the Prisoner. Okay. Okay. You know, that's a you know a song that's under three minutes and it's not mostly instrumental, but like there's not a lot of lyrical content to it. It just mm-hmm. sort of like I guess I'm struggling to make this make sense. Can you help me out here, Steve? Am I yeah, making sense? I, I can see that a little bit. I would say the big difference is for me, prison a song like Prisoner. It just it has so much. There's so much emotion behind it and so much bite. Like there's a really clear mood that you get from Prisoner. Um, and it's, it's very like, you know, proto nine inch nails. Whereas this song, it it just, it seems a little bit more confused. Like, I don't, I don't understand personally where this fits in on the album, um, you know, thematically, uh, or even musically. So (laughs) the way that I figure this out, and it's funny too, because I obviously listened to this record a lot this week, but the first couple times I listened through the album, I was listening in my car and I just assumed that this was the introduction to power. <laughs> like I, I, I didn't, I didn't think it was its own song. 
It, I mean, it sort of is. You could, it sort of, and again, going back to the earlier albums, like it has sort of that prog rock sweet element to it, and that mm-hmm. at least that gas giants definitely, you know, segues directly into power. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. No, that makes sense. And uh, hey, speaking of which, let's talk about power a little bit. I'm gonna uh, let's on. talk about power, not powder. Not powder, your favorite 90s movie. <laughs> but yeah, uh, well, Power is an odd one to me, too. Mm-hmm. Um, just gonna let that intro play for a second there. Oh, yeah, set the mood, baby. And, you know, you're talking earlier about how this sounds like Tears for Fears being you, too. Yeah. I guess I concede that Power is probably the most you, too sounding Tears for Fears song. Oh, absolutely. And, and I still haven't found oh, what I'm looking for. Sorry. God damn it, Steve Guff. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm just ruining this record for you. <laughs> um, the funny well, thing is, it, I, don't, I don't even hate this album. I just I can't help but think of you two sometimes. I'm sorry. And and I definitely get it here because uh, it has like that very anthemic arena rock quality to it. It's uh, probably the I would argue the biggest song on this record. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, I mean, you can just imagine him sort of like standing in front of a crowd of thousands, maybe even doing the Bono pose before he starts singing. Absolutely. Um, and maybe he did do that on stage. I know. I don't know. I was like eight years old when this came out, so I couldn't go <laughs> see them. But um, yeah, I uh, I like Power. Mm-hmm. No, it's not a bad song. It's not a bad song at all. I, I didn't find myself skipping it. I'll, I'll say that. But it's not a song that I come around to that often. I usually only hear it if I'm listening to this album from beginning to end, which um, I do frequently, actually. Um, But yeah, I don't really know what else to say about it other than it's just a pretty, like, nice arena rocker. Mm -hmm. And I think, like, the first half of this record, with the exception of Mr. Pessimist, there's... (laughs) There's a real, like, cohesive feel to it. Like, okay, this is the straight-up, like, you know, Tears for Fears rocker. And, and the second side of this record, it, I, I don't know, it jumps around a lot more. I guess that'd be the best way to put it. Um, so uh, this song, it sounds like, if, if I was redoing this album or something like that, if, if Roland Roswell came up to me and was just like, Steve, hey, I know you've only been listening to us for, like, a month, but... Uh, <laughs> We're going to remaster this record, and we're, for some reason we want to change around the track listing. I would probably um, I, I would pull out Mr. Pessimist and throw it somewhere at, at the back end of this album. I'd put uh, Dog's Best Friend at four, and then I'd put this at five, and that'd be your side one. Oh. So <laughs> that's my completely convoluted, dumb way of saying, ah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a you know, more rock-oriented song, and I think it belongs in the first half of the record. <laughs> Steve Cuff's Frankenstein Elemental. That's right. That's right. I, I like that idea. Actually, I'd be down with that. All right. Well, hey, maybe if we if we get to meet him in Detroit, we'll hang out by the tour bus afterwards, and I'll just be like, "Hey, let me let me float this one by you guys." <laughs> just give him a zip drive of your uh, playlist of this album. This my, I went through. I, read, I went through the trouble of remastering and remixing your entire record that one of you didn't play on. So here you go, for me to you. <laughs> Oh, I, I it, in in a perfect world that's going to happen. <laughs> maybe, maybe one day. Um, so, one of the last songs on this record is I, I it's it's not one of the best songs on the album. Although I guess you could make the argument that it is, but it's one of my favorites just because it's so like silly. I guess it is mine too. I'm glad you said that. Uh, yeah, Brian Wilson said. Um, again, when I when I first listened to this record, I I didn't look at the song titles. I was just listening to it, and I got to this, and immediately I was just like, "Oh, this is like the Tears for Fears Beach Boys song." Like, I wish this was the B side to uh, <laughs> Seeds of Love or something. Yeah. And then I and then I look at the song title. I'm like, "Oh, they're, they're, he's not even like hiding the fact like this that this is not just a pastiche. He's just like, yeah, this is my Beach Boys song." <laughs> And I don't think there's anything in the past that really indicated that he was a Beach Boys fan. No, and, uh, nothing. Absolutely nothing, which is why this came as such a surprise to me. And especially, like, I don't know, like, I don't 
think that it was very popular to reference the Beach Boys in the early '90s. Oh no, because this is this is when like, oh, God, when did Still Cruising come out? Like '89, '90. So the Beach Boys tried to have like a Mike Love resurgence in the late '80s. Yeah, and 90s. yeah. So they recorded uh, like that version after- of Wipeout with the Fat Boys. <laughs> Which side note, the uh, the first cassette that I ever owned as a child was the Beach Boys Still Cruising featuring Wipeout with the Fat Boys. So, this, the Fat Boys were also the first ghosts to ever haunt Steve Cuff's apartment. That is true. Hey, now I need to explain that. So, brief aside here, let me turn down the Brian Wilson. I mean, tears for fears. Um, so, there's this there's this Fat Boys music video. And you can watch it on YouTube. On YouTube, what's what's the name of the song? Um, oh, the, uh, the, twist. Uh, the twist, the chubby checker yeah. twist. So the Fat Boys did a version of the twist because I, I don't know. Maybe that was like a whole thing they were doing at this point in their career where they were just hooking up with these like old 60s acts and like redoing songs. Uh, but anyways, there's this really dumb music video. And one time at literally like three in the morning, <laughs> out of nowhere, like the, the, the song just starts playing from YouTube just absolutely out of nowhere at three in the morning at peak volume. So it starts off with this intro, and it's just like this this mother and her daughter, like, arguing. <laughs> so me and Amanda both just, like, popped out, and we, and we thought, like, one of our neighbors, because we live in an apartment complex, we thought, like, one of our neighbors was having, like, an argument or something, because, you know, it happens, apartment complex. And then all of a sudden, the little girl's like, Mom, you promised you'd get the fat boys! And then the fat boys just <laughs> Come on, baby! Let's do the twist! Chubby chicker and the fat boys! And, and Amanda, my girlfriend, just starts screaming bloody murder. Like, she's confused. She's terrified. And I'm just trying to calm her down. I, I'm like, Amanda, it's okay. It's just the fat boys. <laughs> so the only thing we can think of is it has to be the ghost of the fat boys. Or are they all dead, or just one of them? I, I think just one fat boy is dead. Okay, the dead fat boy, God rest hey. his soul, is haunting my apartment. Hey, Tears for Fears fans, listening to us, please email us and let us know which one of the fat boys is dead. We we really need to know. It's important. Yeah, there's, I think, there's a lot of crossover <laughs> there. <laughs> which fat boy is it? Um. So yeah, going back to this song though. Yep. Because it's it's such a like it's such a playful track and it's really good. It's really really good. Like as far as you know, a contemporary rock band just doing kind of like a little play on the Beach Boys, a little pastiche, whatever. It's a great song. I thought that it, it was the end of the album. I thought it was it, but it's not. There's actually there's there's one more track, and unlike every other Tears for Fears album, the this record does not end on a downer. Right. Which is totally weird. I did not expect that. And for a while, I was like, wait, do I have the the full record? Am I missing something here? So the last song, if I can cue it up. Uh, yeah, this is Good Night Song, and it's kind of a... I, I would say this is more like a 70s-inspired rock tune. Yeah, I would say so. Like, maybe Very, late 60s, early 70s. Yeah, I, well, and I, I kind of get like a little bit of like a Fleetwood Mac vibe from some yeah, guitar playing. Yeah. Something very Laurel Canyon about it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, um, and it still has a bit of a bit of that like you know Brit pop, British rock from the '90s feel to it as well. Um, but yeah, it's it's a pretty solid track. Uh, it just t- wholly unexpected. I didn't expect them to or them Roland to uh, end his yeah. album with like a Fleetwood Mac rocker. I just I just thought the Brian Wilson thing was a cutoff, and it's just him like you know winking at us, and then he just walks away. But no. Yeah, I I really love that song quite a bit. Um, the last two songs in this album actually are probably like some of my favorite moments on the record. Maybe even just like in the Tears for Fears canon. Um, I think that a good night song specifically, I think, is referring to uh, the last song that they would always play at the end of a set, which is always shout. Oh, okay. um, and sort of like him, not complaining, but just like saying like, you know, you gotta play it for the audience. They just, they'll keep screaming, they'll keep shouting till they hear shout. Writing a song about a song. Yeah. And uh, I think the results are beautiful. I think it's uh, one of uh, one of the best songs, at least from this era. Mm-hmm. No, I, I would um, agree. This, this is another, another really solid rock song. Um, and it took me a couple passes through to really have it kind of grow on me. But uh, yeah, I, I enjoy it quite a bit, and it's nice to listen to one of their records and then not end on this like really low key somber thud 
like a lot of their <laughs> albums do. Uh, so yeah, it's it's nice, and it kind of it kind of sums up the whole record for me. Where there are very few moments in Elemental that jump out at me, like oh my god, you know, as much as I struggled with Seeds of Love, at least that title track, I was just like holy crap. Uh, which, by the way, Jake, if you're listening, Jake is another Optimism Vaccine contributor, and uh, he said he got really into the song Seeds of Love. Uh, you should listen to this, uh, the, the Brian Wilson song. It's called Brian Wilson Set. You should listen to it. You'll like it. Uh, but yeah, this record, it doesn't have a lot of those moments that grab me. It's just, it's nice. It doesn't, it doesn't offend my senses in any way. It's just, it's totally fine. Hmm. Well, I guess I would... Uh... I would definitely agree with you in that respect. I think that of all the Tears for Fears albums, it's actually probably the least challenging, uh, with the exception of Mr. Pessimist. Um, and But with that being said, I feel like it's one of their most underrated albums. I think that doesn't get enough discussion points um, yeah. other than you know people talking about fish out of water and other than the fact that um, – Break It Down Again was a fairly big hit for them. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's definitely worth checking out. Um, even if you're not that big of a Tears for Fears fan, I think there's uh, a lot of interesting things that are happening on this record that are very unexpected, um, even though if it's not just like the big Tears for Fears sound that you're used to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if, if you're uh -huh. a new fan like me, I would definitely say do not start here. This is not the place for you to start. Um, but after you dive into the first two records, uh, I think if if you sort of jump into Elemental and Seeds of Love at the same time, uh, they they complement each other well, and they're sort of they're similar in a lot of ways. But at the same time, they kind of highlight this big pop song sound versus you know more of a, like a '90s rock oriented record, uh, and and they pair well together. But yeah, not not the best in the world. But I honestly honestly thought I might hate this one, and I don't hate it, Steve. Well, I'm so, <laughs> that's, that's so like relieved. The, that's the, the common theme of this podcast. I'm pleasantly surprised that I don't hate this. <laughs> Which is good. Well, it's good. And I'm, I'm glad because, you know, you start getting older and it, it becomes more and more difficult to discover music that surprises you. And I've been consistently surprised by Tears for Fears, which is nice. Well, just wait for Raul and the Kings of Spain. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> I am a little bit worried about that. I, Raul and the Kings of Spain, that just sounds like, I don't know, like, if if I was making the great a greatest hits record for Yes, that's what I would call it. It just sounds like a, a prog rock record name. Well, <laughs> buckle up, mister. <laughs> Is it a prog rock record? No. <laughs> oh, damn. <laughs> All right, we'll see. We'll see. Because that, that would be amazing if it was just like a, a giant space rock opera or something. I could get into that. Maybe one day, maybe one day. All right, well, if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to us on iTunes. It helps us out a lot. And if you could uh, rate and review us on iTunes, that helps us out even more. We do a ton of different podcasts. Uh, we cover movies, music, uh, all kinds of stuff. Bunch of different podcasts. We have a whole network of things going on. So when you guys like us, you subscribe to us, you rate us, you write a review, that helps our visibility. It helps more people hear this podcast. It helps more people discover Tears for Fears. And what could be better than that? Also, if you have any questions, if you have any comments, if you want to call me an idiot because I said something dumb about the band that you love, optimismvaccine at gmail.com. That's optimismvaccine at gmail.com. You can also tweet us at optimismvaccine. These episodes are all going to go up on YouTube. If you comment in the YouTube comment section, we will reply to you. We will talk about your, you on air. I mean, we'll say nice things. We won't say mean things. And that's the other thing, too. If you have a question, we will read your question on air. We will answer your tears for fears questions or your insults directed towards me or Steve Coleman. Whatever you want. Yes, please, please send them in. <laughs> please, yeah, please, please send insults to Steve Coleman. Please. <laughs> uh, you, can also, you can also tweet at us or follow us on Twitter directly. I'm at Steve Cuff. That's at Steve, C-U-F-F. And uh, Steve Coleman, you're at Colmania, uh, right? I am at Colmania. That's at K-O-H-L-M-A-N-I-A. -A. Awesome. Is there like a is there like a go kart outside in front of your house? I, I keep hearing a go kart. Yeah, my neighbors. I feel like Mark Marin, like working in his garage. Like my neighbors are doing some yard work right now. <laughs> well, lock the gates. Doom, 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 doom. <laughs> All right. Uh, that, was, that was a really poor Mark Marin show intro impersonation anyways we will be back next week with raul and the kings of spain 
Yes, we will. Should be interesting. I'm driving straight from Milwaukee to Detroit tonight, so I will probably have the Kings of Spain rocking on the stereo. We'll see how it treats me.